This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Get ready for a journey through time and history as we explore the impact of media and politics on our world. With the current state of the world being so politically charged and divisive, it's more important now than ever to understand where we came from and how we got here. That's exactly what Professor Richard Landis' new book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Antisemitism, and Global Jihad aims to do. As a medievalist and expert in apocalyptic beliefs, Professor Landis brings a unique perspective to the table. He explores relationship, the relationship between the medieval mentality and current events and how it's affecting the world we live in. His book documents the impact of misguided reactions and the disconnect between politicians, the media, and the public. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Professor Richard Landis to the show. With his extensive knowledge and expertise, he's sure to offer us a fresh and fascinating perspective on the state of the world today. Get ready to have your mind blown and your perspectives challenged. <laughs> okay, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta okay, give it away now. A, we have a confession to make. ChatGPT wrote this. <laughs> no, not ChatGPT. ChatGPT three alternate uh, no, chat personality. GPT. They have a chat GPT that contradicts oh, the uh, original, really? yes. It's anti-chat GPT. Yes, it gives you the it's, wrong it's, information. <laughs> no, no, the chat GPT gives you the wrong information, certainly on the Palestinian is. Really <laughs> oh yeah, that's high. true, yeah. that's right. true. And then if you challenge it, there's this counter that says, oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, error, error. No, if Chanja, he says, error, error, I cannot say anything about says, that. Jew, 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 <laughs> yeah. points at you. But I got to ask, Professor, why why the whole world in the book, because Eitan asked me, we thought right. it was ChatGPT's mistake, but no, uh. the whole word is in... Uh, in quotation, in quotation marks. quotation marks yeah. in your title. Can yeah. the whole world right. be wrong? Why? Right. Well, first I is should... Is there no world? Uh, uh, no, of course. Are there any is there, other worlds? Is there a ho- the <laughs> whole world that knows something? That's the issue. It, yeah. And the people who speak as if they represent what the whole world knows, I'm quoting them. Mm. So at the, in the front page, I have... Uh, not on the cover, but inside... Looks like a, the cover looks like a Jackson, Jackson Pollock. Yes, yeah. it does. It does. Um, so I quote two people, um, Echad Am in 1892, responding to Christians who, when they hear Jews say, no, we don't, uh, you know, sacrifice Christian boys and use their blood to make matzah, they would reply, can everybody be wrong and the Jews be right? And in 2002, Kofi Annan, the then Secretary General of the United Nations, in the context of accusations of Israeli massacres at Jenin and Israeli denials, said, I don't think the whole world can be wrong and Israel be right. Mm -hmm. Which is such an idiotic, it seems to be (laughs) such an idiotic thing to think after we know 
right. about people who thought the world was flat and right. the world was in the center of the universe. Well, and like, yes, although it's very tempting. I mean, the original, the, it's interesting that you say it's kind of stupid because the original title of the book, the working title... Is the whole world stupid? No. Oh, um, that wouldn't be nice. <laughs> they're, so, they're so smart because we're so stupid. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, and my daughters explained to me that I couldn't insult my readership. And I said, yeah, but I mean, I say we, we're so stupid. They say, you're not fooling anybody. So I dropped the working title. Okay. But behind it is this idea that, you know, this is, we're living through a real life and extremely dangerous emperor's new clothes in which you just saw Anthony Blinken here talk about the desperation of the Palestinians. You know, this is a narrative that is completely at odds. It's it's exactly what the Palestinians say in English. It's completely at odds with what they say in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And there's no correction. So you end up with the world repeating Palestinian propaganda as if it's news, which is the lethal journalism of the title. And, uh, you know... People can't think themselves out of that box. So when Anthony Blinken comes here and says, oh, you know, the two-state solution is the only solution, and we want to support it, and therefore Israelis don't do these five things, and oh, by the way, Palestinians don't incite. He has no idea what that incitement is. But is as part of this this thesis, I mean, is it is it also, is there an urge in your book to, like lower the hubris on both sides meaning for everybody to consider the possibility that they are wrong well i think at all times everybody should consider the possibility that they're wrong but you know there are situations in which the evidence is quite clear and it, you know take the emperor's new clothes it was quite clear to everybody that he was naked but nobody would say it because they were all afraid here we come back to the theme of stupidity. They were all afraid that if they said they couldn't see his clothes, then they'd be judged stupid. Mm -hmm. And so today you have a situation in which if you don't say the Palestinians are a nation just like the Jews are a nation or Israel is a nation, or you say that um, it's racist to call to say Palestinians are driven by honor shame culture, if you if you if you have a situation in which, you know, it's obvious that we're dealing with it honor shame culture in which they, some of them, but under heavy pressure from their community, kill their daughters for shaming their family, not to be able to say that is like not to be able to say the emperor's naked. You're dealing But how do you know when you're on the side that's not wrong? I mean, shouldn't we all consider the idea that possibly, I mean, shouldn't we all be skeptics about I do. our own opinions? Yeah, no, I think we all should be skeptics, but I think that there's a limit to skepticism. In other words, um, you know, one of the memes of this generation is... Uh, um, Pepe the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, is... Uh, um, Pepe the who are, who, are, who are we to judge? Okay, so, you know, you use that anthropology, a whole new turn in anthropology around who are we to judge? Well... You know, it's one thing to suspend judgment until you get enough information. But if you refuse to judge at any point, you're dead in the water. No no creature on the planet can survive without making judgments about who are friends and who are enemies. You know, and when mm -hmm. the Palestinians are celebrating 9-11 and the Israelis are building monuments, 
commemorating 9-11, it's pretty clear who's a friend of America and who's an enemy. And yet, the Palestinians managed to intimidate the AP from showing the footage of them, and journalists continuously repeat that if only the Palestinians had their state, they'd be happy. But, okay, so is the book focused around the Palestinian-Israeli issue? Is it well, focused around... First of all, I call it Arab-Israeli, but go ahead. Is it right. is it focused on the Arab-Israeli right. issue, or is it a wider kind of indictment of uh, consensus and conformity? Well, it, the, th- the four historical chapters in the book, which are, occur in a chapter on what happened in 2000, 2001, 2002, and 2005, six. So one chapter on the beginning of the Antifada, the Al-Aqsa Antifada, which I call the Oslo Jihad, a chapter on 9-11, a chapter on Janine massacre, and a final chapter on the Muhammad cartoon scandal around the Danish newspaper that published those. And in all four of them, what I'm showing is the same instinct, which is, I define it as Y2K mind, the year 2000 mind, because it seized in the year 2000 with Israel, which is essentially when jihadis attack a democracy, blame the democracy. And that happened when... Arafat, who had been saying this was what he was going to do since his visit to South Africa in 2004, in 1994, started the Intifada, and it was reported as, oh, Sharon provoked it. Um, Starting then, you had Western journalists telling the Palestinian side, presenting them as freedom fighters, not wanting to call the attacks on Israel terrorism because one man's freedom fighter is one man's terrorist and another man's freedom fighter and essentially blaming Israel for the outbreak of the Antifada, including the Sharon visit. So on the one hand you have that and then when 9-11 hits it did, didn't happen right away but there was a very strong current that blamed the United States especially in Europe where you know conspiracy theories about Bush did it were selling like hotcakes. Also the Jews did it. Was uh... And the Jews did it. So you have this, this what happened was the, the lethal media reporting I argue under intense intimidation which they won't admit to reporting the Palestinian narrative um, fed a much more serious failing in the West to understand that they were under attack. And so in the same way that it's lethal journalism to report Palestinian nasty propaganda about Israel, they killed Adura on purpose in cold blood, they massacred people at Jenin, et cetera, et cetera, to report that as news, I call lethal journalism. But when you report your own enemies war propaganda as news, I call that own gold war journalism. And that's what the West was doing. They were literally, by reporting Palestinian propaganda, they were reporting global jihad's war propaganda. So you but have this, yeah, <laughs> I want to, I want to challenge it for a second, because okay. I feel like the Good. people who, who, you know, make those claims and are on the other side of the aisle might say, isn't there some truth to the idea that you know, American imperialism and encroaching on the Middle East and trying to shove democracy down their throat throughout the ages has has been some kind of impetus to to this backlash that they suffered. So maybe that I, I mean, I think we can all 
you know, uh, put the conspiracy theorists outside okay. of the Overton window and say they're hopefully. crazy. Hopefully. But, but hopefully, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Most, uh, not a lot. A lot of people right. don't put them outside. But right. I'm saying I think we can. Most people in this discussion. Yeah, in, in this discussion, and I think uh, you know, wider, wider range of people could put that outside of the the Overton window. But isn't there some uh, weight to the idea that America brought on this like reactionary force of terrorism and even even it you know being awful by by uh, what by intervening in the Balkans on the side of the Muslims or by you know by invading Iraq Iraq and well, yeah, well that's 2004 that's long after this mentality has gone haywire yeah so uh, you know America invading Iraq if you want to, we can go into that, but I think it's a, it's a sideshow. The, the real show here is the difference between, yes, there are things that America did that hurt the feelings of Muslims in a number of ways. Some of them legitimate, you know, hurts. I'm not belittling having your feelings hurt. But, you know, if the Arabs want to go after westerners for having done damage to them then it seems to me the english and particularly the french should be their main targets and yet america is the great satan and the reason i think america is the great satan is because it represents the west it is the most powerful it is the hegemonic it's since world war ii it's the hegemonic power and therefore for Muslims, this is the target to bring down. This and, of course, Israel, which is, and this is the reason I call it the Arab-Israeli conflict, it's really the triumphalist Muslim versus autonomous Jew conflict. In other words, Israel, the state of Israel is an autonomous infidel state in what should be Dar al-Islam is a blasphemy. And the fact that the Arabs can't bring it down is a humiliation. Now, you know, there's nothing we can do about that except disappear. And that's not going to make anything better. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of people who seem to think that having bought the, the English or the foreign language Palestinian narrative about all we want is a state and the Israelis are so mean to us and they prevent us and they frustrate us and we're so desperate that we have to uh, engage in terror... This is a narrative that the West has accepted that really, you know, it's contradicted by everything from what they say in Arabic to each other to the decisions they make when they're offered a state, which is repeatedly no. Mm-hmm. And and we always get blamed for it. How does that have to do, like, how the book connects to your areas of expertise about uh, medieval right. cultures and jihad right. and uh, apocalypse? What's okay. the connection here? Good question. There are two, and there, there are two chapters that I deal with that are five and six. And in chapter five, I describe honor-shame, the honor-shame mentality. And I define an honor-shame culture as one in which it's not only legitimate, it's expected and even required to shed blood to save honor. Honor, shame is ha- honor and shame? Honor and shame. Okay. Or shame and honor, actually. Okay. Um, so, so again, how do you define it? As a, as a culture in which it is legitimate, expected, and even required to shed blood for the sake of preserving honor. 
Okay. Okay, so when somebody kills their daughter because she's done something that shamed them in the community, that's a good example of an honor-shame culture. It's actually a pretty okay. pathological one. And how does that have so, to do with that? So uh, that's, what's, that's what's going on in the Middle Ages. That's, you know, it wasn't until the Enlightenment and the introduction of all kinds of legal egalitarian principles that we started to move away from that, that we began to say, you know, duels are not the way to decide who's right. Mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the Dreyfus case, and we're talking about the turn of the 20th, 19th, 20th century, in the Dreyfus case, there were dozens of journalists who were killed in duels because mm -hmm. their criticism of public figures, you know, paga and hurt so their honor, hurt their honor, wounded their honor, and mm -hmm. they had to fight back. So, mm -hmm. you know, we we only recently have made it to a point where we believe that, and this is my definition of civil society, you decide disputes through a discourse of fairness. What courts are about, and so on. But in the Middle Ages, you know, certainly the aristocracy had the right to take on anybody. I, Game of Thrones is the yeah, Game of Thrones is a good example. Lancelot at one point, you know, kills twelve people who accuse him of committing adultery with Guinevere, and he and and then claims that they must have been lying because he killed them. Mm -hmm. Right? They were telling the truth, but he killed them. Meaning, so, might might makes right. Exactly. Exactly. And it took a long time in my reading of Western history, really from the turn of the first millennium, the 11th century, until the 20th century to reach a point where you really had serious, a, a, a serious culture that had transcended the, the, not the feelings of honor, shame, but the the translation of those feelings of wanting honor and fearing shame translating into violence. And your thesis is basically that Western media, Western culture, Western politicians, Western journalists don't understand Arab culture, which is shame, yes. honor yes. culture? They That's project, like your... Right. Yes, they project, I call it liberal cognitive egocentrism. Mm -hmm. They project their mentality onto the Arab world. So, for instance, we had uh, Condoleezza Rice come here. And at one point she was asked, you know, what do you think about the idea that the problem here is because the Palestinians want to destroy Israel and they'll sacrifice their people for it. And she said, I don't believe that. I've met them. They're educated people. Mothers want their daughters to go to college. I mean, it just... You know, I mean... Anecdotes. And not only anecdotes, but a, a sort of convinced projection. And if you challenge that projection, you'll be accused of racism, which was the main point, in my mind, of Saeed's Orientalism, was to say anybody who starts bad-mouthing the West, uh, bad-mouthing the Arab world, is a racist. Mm -hmm. And that's become, you know, dogma. And how, what other? And you mentioned you mentioned two chapters. So okay, chapter so the five second chapter. The second chapter is on what I call caliphaters, and I define caliphaters as Muslims who believe that in this generation, that's what makes them apocalyptic. They think it's now, Islam will conquer the world. Where there was Dar al Harb, the realm of the sword, which is where we live and where the United the States, States and Europe live. Also no, Europe. Dar al-Kharb, okay. where there was Dar al-Kharb, there will be Dar al-Islam. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is what the ISIS state tried to recreate. Now, this is a classic apocalyptic millennial belief, and I've studied them, and I have a book on them. That was my one of my earlier books. Uh, and in it, I discuss the, the, the various forms it can take, and the most dangerous form of apocalyptic millennial is what I call active cataclysmic apocalyptic, which is not only does a massive cataclysm and destruction of evil need to occur before the millennium of heaven on earth can come about, but we are the agents of bringing about that destruction. We destroy evil. The Nazis were like that. The communists were like that. Mao was like that. And and the jihadis are like that. The caliphators are like that. So how does one go about it? Like moving to Europe, the, the, the huge, um, you know, the huge transformation of a pop- population. The, That's one the, way. That's mm-hmm. one way, sure. I mean, they've, the caliphators have developed a very powerful, nice cop, tough cop routine, which is that the tough cops strike, like bin Laden, and then the nice cops come in and say, oh, you know, if only you weren't so mean to us, if only you didn't support Israel, that evil state, if only you didn't send your armies, we wouldn't attack you. Mm-hmm. And... I have a chapter later on in which I talk about what I call preemptive dimitude, which is leaders who adopt a, the behavior of the vimi, that is the infidel living under Muslim rule, who, for whom the first and most important commandment is thou shalt not blaspheme, which translates in an honor-shame culture into thou shalt not criticize. And so you have this massive behavior on the part of Western thought leaders, politicians, etc., policymakers, and even intelligence people, and this includes in Israel, of people who subdue, will submit, who, who do everything they can not to criticize Islam. Where do you think that stems from? Like, why? What, why why are they stuck in this loop? Well, I think... On they one, haven't read the book, obviously. Right, right. <laughs> um, I, I think on one level... Um, look, on one level, it's just sheer um, intimidation. I mean, you know, the people who made the cartoons in the Danish cartoon affair, uh, some of them were killed. Let's talk um, about it. Maybe not Charlie all, all Hebdo, of our... They were killed. So. Maybe not all of our listeners know about this story. So if you can elaborate. Okay, so chapter four is about the Danish cartoon stand. It starts when a Danish editor of a newspaper, conservative newspaper, um, noticed that he couldn't even get an illustrator to do illustrations for a children's book about Muhammad, which was very positive. It was a, it was a you know... This is the prophet. He was wonderful. Nobody would do it because there had been this insistence on the part of certain very radical Muslims, Sunnis, that it is forbidden to do pictures of Muhammad. Now, the original prohibition on pictures of Muhammad was an internal affair. It was to avoid a tendency towards idol worship. 
of you know worshiping these images. Now we in the West are not in danger of that, but what they did was they transformed it into what I call a cognitive war campaign against the West to impose Sharia law, which says you can't do a picture of Muhammad, on infidels in Dar al Harb. Okay? And the way they did it was they stirred up outrage in the Muslim street, including forging three extra cartoons, one showing Muhammad as a pig, one showing Muhammad being buggered by a dog while praying, and one showing Muhammad as Satan. Now, these are definitely inciting cartoons. The others, four of them, wouldn't even depict Muhammad. And the eight, the eight others, only about four were critical, and they were certainly well within the range of what's considered criticism in the Western world. And yet, there's this huge outcry that's, that's basically staged and, and, um, and orchestrated by these radical Muslim uh, leaders from Denmark and picked up by people like Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who fully approves of suicide terror against Israeli civilians um, to a day of rage, and people are killed, most of them Muslims, in these demonstrations and stuff, and there are demonstrations... In Denmark? In, in all over the world, but in Europe, as well as in the Muslim world. So you have these days of rage that are called, and so on, and the response of the Westerners was, instead of saying, who made these three things? You guys are so so pious that you don't want a picture of Muhammad, but you make three pictures that are as blasphemous as one can possibly imagine. But did people know at the time that these pictures were forged? Yes. The way you knew was you knew what the Gillen's Post had published. The what post? The the newspaper, the Danish newspaper. The Uh. 12 cartoons were known. People were afraid to even post them. I have them at my blog. So the Danish, I'm sorry, I just wasn't able to follow totally. The right. Danish uh, Post, the Danish newspaper, right. published 12 cartoons, 12 which cartoons. were critical of Mohammed. And then, and then some extremist Muslim leaders published an, an extra three. Added three and went throughout the Middle East, rousing were, fury. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. But, and and nobody in this? the West, 2005, 2006. Really? It was before? Didn't Obama go on the apology? tour afterwards wasn't that connected to it it was connected to it the pope was forced to apologize said he didn't apologize but back down a little later when he's that's another story but no this is this is really the first massive staged emergency but but the hebdo murders happened much later oh yeah 2015 ah okay that's what got but the guys who drew the drawings the the danish danish guys right something happened to them uh i think one of the japanese uh, translators I, I can't remember okay. exactly the details but, but the there were people there were people who died because of this uh, there were Westerners who mm-hmm. died because of this. And then, of course, with Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, that's the um, big one. That's yeah. a big one. And I think, you know, with that one, I feel it's been a complete victory for the Muslims in mm-hmm. France. Mm-hmm. Right? Because absolutely. it went absolutely, you know, they buried the story, I feel. They for, they want, just like 9-11 in America, honestly. Yeah. Two, like, huge things that happened that right. were... Like everyone, everybody wanted to 
yes. mop it under Go, the carpet. Right. So, for example, in 9-11, within a week or two, and this is uh, uh, detailed in a book that I cite, I forget the name of the guy, but um, within a week or two, you no longer saw pictures of people, you know, Mm-hmm. who had thrown themselves out of the windows. Mm-hmm. All of the images of of the victimization of Americans mm-hmm. were cleaned out. Um, because, and this is, I think, an interesting dimension of the problem, it was a very strong feeling. I mean, I don't know how old you guys are, but you were probably not really fully aware back in 2001. Oh, well, we were... I was in the 7th grade. 12th grade. I was 12 years old. Yeah, I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of the the magnitude of the event. It's definitely not when I first heard of it. Right, right. So... uh, Did you even know what the World Trade Centers were? Yes, I was there a month before. Ah, okay. Well, then, that's that's chance. Lucky, also. (laughs) Yes. All right, but uh, the, the overall point is that uh, the the 9-11, the fear that was openly spoken of was that if you show too many images of people suffering at the hands of Muslims, people will become Islamophobic. And we don't want that above all. But you don't think, yeah, I mean, because that's a big, they don't feel like that's a big conspiratorial, like, I mean, What's a big conspiracy? That, that it was cleaned away, those images. Because I could see... They disappeared. Yeah, but I could I could just as easily imagine why they disappeared being, you know, news agencies and media outlets not wanting to evoke, like, meaning it's, it's, it's uh, disconcerting, seriously disconcerting, traumatic even to see those images. It's very... Okay, so... No one likes to, you know, it's like right. publishing the dead so person. So here's, here's the difference between what I call an integrity guilt culture and a shame honor culture which is that in the Arab world, when they got the footage of Muhammad Adua, they ran it obsessively over and over and over again. They... they Bathed. Disconcerting, yeah, they bathed in it. (laughs) Whereas here we are sort of like, oh, we don't want to emphasize our victimhood because we don't want people taking revenge. And there was one Sikh guy who got attacked on a train and stuff. So yes, there was there was a danger of an ab reaction in, in the Netherlands when Theo van Gogh was uh, assassinated by a Moroccan Muslim. Um, there were attacks against uh, Muslims. America, by and large, didn't attack their Muslim population. And and it was largely because, and I discuss it at length in the book, George Bush had a speech in which he said, you know, American Muslims aren't involved in this. And you think they are? I think there were plenty who were happy. There are plenty of stories of mm-hmm. that American Muslims who were happy, including people who were translators for the FBI. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not saying so all American Muslims... They would Muslims, rather not deal with it, That's what you're saying. Not deal with it. Well, I think there's a double impulse. One is what some might ungenerously call virtue signaling, which is look at us, we don't retaliate, we don't arouse hatred. Um, And then on the other hand, there are people who are literally afraid that if they do this, they will become the targets. And and what's happened in America since 9-11 is that, in fact, it's not so much that they're targets of Muslim violence, which is relatively, you know, sporadic, 
but they're targets of their colleagues who attack them for Islamophobia, and they're people who get canceled and lose their jobs and lose their promotions and lose their audiences because they're accused of Islamophobia. I was supposed to give um, testimony before the British Parliament, and somebody dug up a, a tweet I wrote about uh, uh, Muslim, the figures for Muslim rapes in Scandinavia. Mm. and accused me of being an Islamophobe, and I got canceled. Mm-hmm. Now, I was minor, but people the way, lose their uh, jobs. You're canceled from this podcast, too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, but let's, can we complete the Hebdo timeline? Because sure. I, I want to understand how, mm-hmm. from 2005-06, the Danish cartoons lead to what happened. In, Hebdo was in France, right? Yeah. Right, right. So, uh, what happened was that... Um, the story dragged out. In other words, on the one hand, the Muslims are saying, don't you dare do pictures of Muhammad. It insults us. And some in the West, like Christopher Hitchens, and there was a statement signed by Ayan Hirsi Ali and a number of other major figures, Salman Rushdie and so on, saying, no, you shouldn't give in to this kind of um, intimidation and insistence and um, and uh, and and avoid doing anything that the radical Muslims might consider blasphemy. And Charlie Hebdo decided to challenge that, and they pu- published a cartoon of Muhammad, which, again, was not particularly offensive. And, well, if you're in an honor-shame culture, yes, it was offensive. But, you know, by standards of modern cartooning, and certainly by standards it of Arab It wasn't just cartooning. a newspaper. It was a satirical right. comic strip right. uh, magazine which made fun of everybody from everybody. Jews to Muslims to everybody. Yeah, but I think the whole dancing around how offensive it is is like that's exactly western culture nothing is offensive enough to murder someone over <laughs> right Meaning well in now the you've West, just you've gone is... to my de- definition of what's beyond honor shame culture yeah. violence is not a legitimate way to solve problems of your being insulted yeah if someone publishes a cartoon that is so horribly offensive even by western standards right. the a- reaction of a western citizen is right. to just be like that's a garbage outlet i'm never gonna you know read their content ever again or not because a a year before this controversy broke out there was a disgusting cartoon of ariel sharon as goya's chronos swallowing babies and saying what you never saw a politician kiss babies before and this was this was after the Jenin massacre and stuff, this cartoon, which Jews in Britain were screaming about being anti-Semitic, was awarded the cartoon of the year from the political cartoonist society. In France? In, no, in England, where, oh, in England. Would, uh, it, where it uh, was published on Holocaust Memorial Day. And... <laughs> That's <laughs> like a joke. And, That's like a bad joke. And when a journalist, Martin Himmel, went to interview the guy who gave it the award, he said, you know, how come you guys don't do cartoons of Arafat eating babies? I mean, you know, there's plenty of evidence. <gasps> how dare you? Right. And he said, well, Jews don't do fatwas, do they? <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. At least he's honest. <laughs> yeah. But so the, the, the result of Hebdo, let's just give our, our listeners the, the final 
the final part of the story. Well, I know it's not over. First of uh, all, many people were murdered there. Fifteen people were murdered. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you. There was a what's radical. Interesting. Uh, uh, it was a terrorist attack, basically, on the right. the headquarters. So of it was Charlie a huge Hedley. demonstration the next day, and I was actually in it because uh, I was on my way to the states to finish uh, to to start the spring semester. Um, and so I stopped in, in Paris. My wife and I were there. We were in the demonstration. It was a massive demonstration and stuff. It was impressive. But, you know, the fact is that nobody would dare do a cartoon of Muhammad again. You know, so you're out there, you protest, you feel good about yourself. But they win. They win. And, and to illustrate in the book, I actually use this to illustrate it. Um, a, a musician named David Martello drove all night from Germany to Paris in order to play Imagine outside <laughs> the Bataclan. Imagine all the people. And, so, and, and the newspaper said, you know, it was a victory for peace and democracy and so on and so forth. It was not at all. And, and the politicians, including Obama, are saying things like, um, this is senseless violence. It's not senseless violence. It's directed violence. The message is loud and clear. Everybody gets the message. But again, we're in the emperor's new clothes story. It's senseless violence. In an unashamed culture, all violence is meaningful. In These a, are radical extremists. They don't represent Muslim culture as a well, as a whole. And what right? evidence do you have for that? No, no, I'm saying that's it. Right, that's, that's, the, claim. The, that's do, the claim. Do they that's or the do claim. they not represent? How is that a representative of of Muslim Muslim culture? culture? Yeah. Is it, in your opinion? Well, it's. It's an expression of what I call triumphalist Muslim culture. So I define triumphalism, and it's a religiosity. It's a form of religion. I define it as a belief that in order to feel secure about your having the true religion, the religious truth, you have to visibly dominate others. So in the Middle Ages and even into the early modern period, um, there were people who were executed for not showing respect for the Catholic Church. Okay? So that's a legitimate reason to execute somebody is they have dissed the Catholic Church. That was. That was by them right. considered. That was right. Yeah. right. I just want to. I just want to make it clear right. to our but listeners that about, you don't think that we're talking so about true. centuries. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. talking about centuries now. Um, today, triumphalist Christianity is, let's say, in recession, if not hopefully gone. Triumphalist Islam is still very strong, and there's nobody who can really tell you. How many Muslims are triumphalist and and literally feel in their gut that their dominion, that being shown exceptional respect in the public sphere is necessary to their sense of who they are? I you know I don't nobody's been able, and I don't think anybody could actually determine what percentage of Muslims in the world are like that. But I, I can tell you that certainly in the Muslim-majority world, even if they're not the majority, they dominate. 
in Palestinian political culture, they dominate. But I think it's also like a, Sam Harris had a good response to this that I once heard that he talks about concentric circles and the level right. of extremism from and <laughs> while in Western culture you don't find these extreme beliefs, meaning obviously not everybody is going out to blow themselves up in the middle of the street. That has to be the extreme. But as as the those extreme elements become more and more pervasive and prevalent, then you can assume that the that's just the tip of the iceberg and right. what's beneath it. And just to, you know, give people an idea, like just in Israel, the this small country with a relatively small Muslim population, considering the Muslims are over a billion people worldwide, right. we had last year some 20-odd people, who 20-odd women who were murdered, and like the majority of them, like 22 out of 24, were from the Arab community. Um, usually victims of, of honor, uh, killings. honor killings. Shame murders, I call them. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. to so, mention what happens in the Palestinian Authority, which we can't right. even uh, measure. Follow. And also in Israel, which we yeah. can't measure, meaning yeah, a lot yeah. of murders go right. unsolved and aren't recorded as, yeah. a, as a murder right. or a homicide. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I mean, it's clearly a more, much more pervasive issue in Muslim culture. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And right. so Sam Harris had this idea of like, so that's the most extreme representation, mm -hmm. but but you know people who believe that um, that this you know, is a September eleventh was form. a legitimate response right. are right. a little bit right. bigger, and then people right. who believe that homosexuality right. should be punished by right. death or even a little bit bigger, and, and right. so on and so forth. And 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 here I think it's really important to understand the role of lethal journalism in encouraging the worst. So. During the 1990s, during the Oslo peace process, it, Hamas developed suicide terror. Okay, Up until the failure of that process, um, only about 25% of Palestinians approved of suicide terror, which is a terrifying figure. A quarter of the population approves of sending out kids to blow themselves up amongst other people's kids. Um, but only about 25. After Muhammad Adura hit, it shot up to 80%. So in other words, the, the, the degree to which these concentric circles reverberate with these actions is to a great deal, to a great extent, related to the way the media covers it. Mm -hmm. Now, another example that isn't related to the media covering it, but lets you have an idea of how these things reverberate is, you know, it was an Egyptian journalist who literally said, after 9-11, finally I can breathe. You know, the American hegemon was suffocating me. And Sam Harris also points out that, you know, Baudrillard in France, 10 days after 9-11, wrote a piece saying, you know, anybody who loves freedom has to cheer these guys on. Because anybody who strikes a blow at so suffocating a hegemon as the United States has got to be a hero. But I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, because there's this river of history of cultures mm -hmm. and religions, and what you're basically saying is that up until a certain point, Christian culture and Muslim culture was the same stream, and then there was this diverge, and, mm -hmm. and, and, the Christian culture went one way, and the Muslim culture went stayed put. Stayed the same, or even I, dug in and, deeper. And we and 
it's also more bizarre considering that if you go even back in history, right. Muslim culture was way yeah. more advanced. Yeah, in a thousand... And sophisticated. In a thousand, Europe is the bottom of the third world and Islam is the top along with Song China of the first world. Yeah. And within so centuries happened? it switched. Okay, so that's, that's my medieval work. <laughs> so the opposite of triumphalist religiosity is what I call demotic religiosity. And demotic is not demonic. It's demotic... And it comes from the Greek word demos, or people. So it's, a, in a sense, the same as popular. Populus, popular, demos, demotic. But I use demotic to mean something somewhat different, which is not a sort of condescending, give them images, give them relic cults, keep them happy, but teach them how to read. Everybody has access to the holy texts, Everybody has the right to interpret those texts as they will. Um, e the law should treat everybody equally. And labor is a dignified activity. Now, in the Middle Ages, in unashamed cultures, the aristocracy doesn't do manual labor. Anybody who does manual labor is literally stigmatized. So in the course of a thousand years, uh, on the basis of this demotic religiosity, which in Christianity expressed itself as apostolic, the apostolic life, um, you have the development of this alternative form of religiosity, which on the one hand is not as powerful because it's not imperialist, I mean powerful in the physical sense, but is much more creative uh, economically, socially, and so on, that the West begins to develop. And so from the 11th century on, the West is constantly developing new technology. Technology is in fact the product of smart people who work the Romans, somebody came, guy invented the watermill and came to the Roman emperor, and the Roman emperor gave him a lifetime stipend and put away the invitation because he he had slaves to do that work, and if he used that those mills, what would he do with his slaves? And he might have a slave rebellion on his hand. So these are two different attitudes towards the lower classes, the working classes, equality before the law also. All of these things are aspects of religiosity that I think are very strong in Judaism and that Christians increasingly adopted. And that ups and Boosted. downs is the story of the last thousand years in the West. And it went in a very different direction. And today, people are so much a part of this world, they can't imagine the previous world. So like Condoleezza Rice, they look at the Palestinians and say, oh, well, no, no mother would send her daughter out to kill herself. You know, even though there were mothers who sent there and cheered about it and bragged about it. It's like a blind spot. One of the things I heard, actually, recently, I'm not sure, I can't remember where I heard it, but it was on a podcast, but that... In these honor killings, ah, it was Gadi Taub, I think, one mm -hmm. of his guests, um, that in these honor killings, one of the main figures that's there to really kind of, you know, put down the hammer is uh, no the gavel, is the, uh, is the mother. 
meaning that the, the, the oh, family yeah. assembles yeah. within the family's home right. and the mother comes along with right. you know the father and the son and right. one of the, one of the voices that ultimately makes the decision i think what they were implying is even the voice to make right. the decision is the mother well there's look there was a mother who killed her daughter <laughs> this is such a terrible story the daughter had been raped by her son the daughter's brother had raped her here in israel here in israel no, in the PA. In the PA. But the PA actually intervened and uh, sought to save the girl. Mm-hmm. And the mother insisted on killing her. Why? Because for the sake of her other children, because nobody would marry them. They were outcasts of the community. The I would say the real gavel banger here is the community. If the community didn't demand that the child be murdered in order to restore the family's honor, I think there are plenty of fathers and mothers who wouldn't do that. Yeah, but, you know, there's individual responsibility. Oh, no, I'm not arguing mother that, who Look, I'm not arguing The community that, but, won't change but until again, the individuals again, change. Again, well, first of all, I'm not sure how that works, but we, can, we could talk about it. But the very fact that you say there's individual responsibility means you don't understand how shame honor cultures work in which tribal identity and collective identity and clan identity easily trumps individuality yeah of course but i think that that's that's the issue right is that individuality like grows out of individuals who have a sense of individuality and that sense of individuality no but that sense of individuality is so strong within them that it that it trumps that collective thinking and slowly you you have to wait you can make you can make that argument for the west and in fact there's an interesting book by a name named paul swig called the heresy of self-love and he argues that you know one of the striking things about the west is this you know martin luther standing up against the church and saying here i can't here i am i can no other right i've got to do this my conscience drives me to do this but that's the beginnings of integrity Mm-hmm. Oh, this is so interesting. <laughs> it is. I mean, I have like a million questions, but I don't know. Because uh... so many things seem clear to us today, but I guess the question is like where, you know, how did, how did these processes begin and how come Christianity, which stemmed out of Judaism, became this like ruthless, you know, tyrannical, murdering uh, culture? <laughs> As a friend and of then... mine said, right? As a friend of mine said, uh, Judaism started out warlike and became peaceful christianity started peaceful and became warlike and islam started out warlike and stayed that way <laughs> but, but there but, was this period of of this golden right. period that we talked about and i still don't quite get how that flipped how oh, in islam yeah so the argument as far as i understand it and i can't say i'm an expert in this but as far as i understand is that in the 12th and 13th century, both in Christianity and in Islam, there were fundamentalist reactions against the development of free thinking, philosophy. You know, the 11th century Muslim thinkers like Averroes are, you know, major players in the development of the Western political and and philosophical tradition. So, um, but both the Christians, the Catholics, and the Muslims, the Sunnis, reacted against this. The, the fundamentalists amongst the Sunnis were successful because the philosophers were, by and large, court products. They had, been, they had developed within the setting of a court where they were given protection and so on. 
In Europe, their base was the universities, and the universities were actually universitas is another word for a free commune. So they were they had their own rights, they had their own rules. It's not that they didn't, you know, crack down on stuff, but ultimately the tradition of openness survived in the West and then took like lightning with the printing press. And in the Muslim world, it more or less was extinguished. And when the printing press came, the Muslims' attitude was, you know, the the Dhimmi people can have it, the Christians and the Jews can have the printing press, but no Mus- no no Muslims should have the printing press. And the excuse they gave was that the Quran shouldn't be printed. But, you know, you could say the Quran shouldn't be printed and still let the population use the printing press. But the printing press was one of the most demotic, the alphabet is one of the most demotic uh, forces in the development of a society. And it had a huge impact on the West. To them, we're all Vimis? We, no, we should be the means. We should be the means. <laughs> For the caliphaters, Just there are three. There, what's a dhimi okay, and the, the right? Okay, so a, a dhimi is um, the status of originally the Christians and the Jews in a Muslim-run society. A society. It's a principle within the law, Sharia. Um, now, it's presented as a treaty, and apologists say, oh, they're a protected minority, but you it's a little like dealing with, uh, what is it, Chad GPT? <laughs> you got to challenge that uh, statement and say, okay, what are they being protected from? Well, they're being protected from Muslim violence. And how are they protected from Muslim violence? By accepting a subjected status in which they don't dare criticize, in which they have to ask permission to repair their synagogues, in which they can't, or churches, in which the churches can't go higher than mosques. And they pay money. And they pay money. money protection, and they have to walk in the gutter when a Muslim is walking on the sidewalk, and they can't ride horses because that's an honorable, thing to do they have to ride donkeys and all and and it seems to me this is classic apartheid they can't bear witness in a court of law and they can't bring a case against a muslim so essentially they are slaves third uh, third class citizens certainly certainly by any serious definition of apartheid this is religious apartheid but you're saying jews and, and christians but mostly jews lived under those no no christians did too although there was a hierarchy even there so for instance greek orthodox christians were probably the most favored and the jews were the absolute bottom and and you know one of the ways that you buy off uh, you know mill talks about this about why um men aren't feminists is because they need their wives to beat up on when they come home because their bosses beat up on them during the day right so the the muslims beat up on the on the orthodox greeks and the orthodox greeks beat up on the next group down and next group down and everybody beats up on the jews so yeah we were at the bottom of the hierarchy and this was like because there are people who talk about Again, the golden periods of Islam, or how the Jews yeah. had it the best under the this was yeah. the best that the Jews ever had it under the Muslims. Well, look, being I, at the bottom rung. Right? No, there there are two things to understand here. One is when I say they were at the bottom rung, we're talking about say the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. Okay. Now, throughout the entire history of Islam, it wasn't necessarily like that. It really depended on the temper of the time. So, if 
people were feeling insecure, and this is true of Christianity as well, when they felt insecure about uh, the, there were challenges to the notion of the, um, the Eucharist being the actual, the, the transfiguration. Um, so the Eucharist is the actual blood of Christ, not a symbol of the blood of Christ, or the, not the Eucharist, the, uh, the wine, and the Eucharist is the body. Um, you get vicious anti-Semitism as a way of cha- channeling that anxiety. So when, when Muslims are feeling insecure, jubating is the f- easiest thing to go for. Doesn't mean it happened all the time, doesn't mean it was always terrible. Um, but you're constantly living under that fear of that happening. Jews. And what does it mean that uh, they want, even today, they want all of us to be demis? Right. So what it means is, you know... I don't want to be demis. Yeah, no. <laughs> Just to make... Right, I don't either. <laughs> Some and people it, are into that, and it's right. fun. Yes, well, so, <laughs> yeah, so it turns out, I mean, one of the jobs of Vimy leaders in throughout the history of Islam was to make sure to police their community, to make sure nobody yeah. in their community... Like you did, Rat. Yeah, well, it's a little strong because uh, they weren't being exterminated. Um, but basically... It depends where. Right, yeah, but... Okay, but in general, what we're talking about is, and, and these people could really believe that they were protecting their communities by making sure that no troublemakers angered the Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's happening to now. This preemptive dimitude is actually pays off. If you're a preemptive dhimmi in the West today, if you're somebody who's apologizing for Islam and, and uh, 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 calling anybody who criticizes Islam an Islamophobe and so on and presenting dimitude as a protected minority and telling the story of how uh, during the golden age of Islam, the Jews were a happy minority and protected and so yeah, but, but, on. Hold on, let me sorry. finish. If you're telling that, you're doing very well. You got a lot of money from Qatar or some other place in the mm-hmm. Arab world, Saudi Arabia. You're sitting in a chair in a university. You're publishing books that publishers love to publish. Um, and you're doing just fine. But you, you're going very far. You know, I was sitting on Friday watching news and right. I see the main uh, Channel 12 uh, uh, how, like journalist that deals with the Arab world, mm-hmm. Ohad Chemo, for two minutes straight explaining how anything the government would do against terror attacks would result in peacing of the Arabs, which is why we shouldn't do those right. things. Right. And you hear it all the time in Israeli right. media and right. uh, politicians. Why did Ben Gvir go to Temple Mount? It it will, right? It will bring the entire region lighted on fire. Right. So Sharon Sharon caused the Antifada by going up to the Temple Mount. Yeah. Everybody pre- predicted apocalyptic fury when uh, Bush. Uh, um, Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Yes. This is a typical Vimy response, which is we're afraid of their anger. So don't do anything to anger them. And we so, blame ourselves, like yeah. some like a like a right. abused abused yes. wife. Yes. You know, when, I shouldn't have angered him. I shouldn't have upset right. him. When jihadis attack, blame the democracy. And so what you you get is this really bizarre situation in which, you know, I would say that most of the policymakers in America are very much captive of this vision. Maybe in Israel also. And in Israel as well. So, for example, I don't know if you remember, but I think it was 2000 and... 
Gee, I'm sorry, I forgot the year, but there was an attack on a synagogue in Harnoff. And the CNN headline was, Deadly Attack in Jerusalem Mosque. Mm-hmm. Not synagogue. And Wolf Blitzer is interviewing somebody from Haaretz and saying, now, not exploring how ISIS might have inspired this particularly vicious attack of, you know, coming coming in with a, a, I don't know, a scimitar or something and chopping people up while they pray, didn't explore the possib- what the ideology was behind it, what the possible influence of ISIS's behavior might be on it. All he could talk about was Netanyahu says he's going to destroy the house of the, the terrorists. Isn't that just going to make things worse? I mean, not even an open question, a leading question. Anybody in court would have said, you know, yeah, objection. Counsel, counsel is leading the witness. And, and of course, the witness was only to have to say, absolutely, you know, Bibi's pushing this. They only understand strength. And that's such a crazy Neanderthal idea. And, and he's to blame. Yeah, but I mean, that's like the media has gone. I was just listening to a podcast today from uh, Channel 12, which is like the CNN here, if not worse. And, uh, and, about the judicial reforms. And mm-hmm. it just felt like the entire thing, like there wasn't a question the host of the podcast asked that wasn't a setup wasn't for an right. answer. Meaning right. there was no actual journalism journalism yep. happening yep. there. There yep. was journalisming, as, <laughs> TM. Uh, as yeah, TM, Ben Shapiro um, calls it. There, there was no journalism. There was, he was just asking questions. Right. He knew, like, they, I think, I felt like, and they probably it's not far from the truth, probably, that they talked before, and they right. were like, all right, then I'll ask this, and that'll set you up right. for this. Right, we have and, the narrative. Well, yeah. Right. But, okay, so let's, let's talk a bit about, like, maybe a couple minutes, and then we can wrap it up about the future. So if this is the state, if, if Muslims around the world are still in a medieval mindset. How do you feel like how do you I would think say they're they're still in the honor shame. In the orbit of a medieval mindset. It doesn't mean that there aren't Muslims who have broken loose. You know, there are Muslims, for example, who, you know, when a, a Jew is being attacked by his fellow Muslims saves them. You know, so yeah. it's not it's not like there's no decency in that world. It's just that the gravitational pull of honor shame yeah. is still much more powerful. No, when I say Muslims, yeah. I mean Muslim Muslim culture. Triumphalist Muslims. Yeah, it's not no Muslim culture. It's not a indictment okay. of uh, any, every right. single individual right. Muslim. But okay, but if Muslim culture is, and maybe that's the answer to my question, but I'll ask it anyway. If Muslim culture is still in this this medieval mindset or orbiting a medieval uh-huh. mindset, then how do how do we move forward? Like, how do you see? Right. Hopefully, I mean, Christianity went through a reformation. Right. Is that right. like how do we I'm how do we move past this? Do, is then. there is there in in two hundred years is there a scenario where we don't yeah. have radical Islam? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, look, I mean, the first thing we can do is we can stop encouraging the worst. So, for instance, if journalists were honest enough to admit that they're intimidated and that they're handing us Palestinian stuff, Palestinian English version narrative, um, that would go a long way. Uh, if, uh, If they were to tell us, you know, what... People like Itamar Marcus at uh, Palestinian Media Watch and uh, 
um, you got Carmon at memory, document on a regular basis. If they were to tell us that the Palestinian political culture admires Hitler and is repeatedly using genocidal incitement, I think that would have a significant effect. And a lot of Muslims, Palestinians, might even be shamed by having this stuff come out. As it is, they get away with anything. You know, I'm Hanan Ashrawi in the last generation now with, um, I forget their name, so somebody, Arakat and stuff. They get on and they just lie and they. Eric sm- being the prime minister. No, 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 not. Um, Say it's a like, woman. No, ah, no, it's a woman. Okay. Um, but they're propaganda. All right, but they and so they get on to CNN and to BBC ah. and they say Israel is racist. It's apartheid. We've done everything that we need to do. We've made all the sacrifices. It's all up to Israel. Israel's to blame for everything that's going wrong, and nobody contradicts them. Nobody challenges them. And instead, when an Israeli starts to get to these points, they get challenged, they get contradicted, they get interrupted. But assuming that won't so change. If we change that, and if the left start stopped making the Palestinian cause the litmus test of progressive credentials, if people who heard people say, you know, Israel, Palestine free from the river to the sea, if those people were not given access to progressive circles the way today's Zionists are not given access to progressive circles, then I think you would see a very different dynamic. Right now, everything that the West is doing encourages the worst in the Muslim world. And they blame us, which is music to the ears of the triumphalist Muslims. If that were to change, then you could begin to see some changes. And then I think, you know, there are ways that we can encourage this by reinforcing the religiosity of Muslims who are not triumphalist. But right now, the attitude in the West is, you know, if they're triumphalist Muslims, they're authentic, so we have to deal with them, like care. Uh, And the people who are not, who are moderate, who genuinely, not performa, but genuinely condemn terror and stuff, they're they're inauthentic Muslims. They 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 carry no weight with their community, so they're not of interest to us. No, we should be encouraging these people, and we should be working with the communities. And I think, personally, I think there's enough goodwill there to be developed. But it's going to take a while, and you have to stop poisoning Palestinian children with genocidal hatred. And you know, that's a big ask. It's okay. So it's a big <laughs> ask, but. Until you're willing to do that, it seems to me, as a Western progressive, you have no right to tell Israel that it's at fault for there not being peace. You have no right to continually attack Israel for what they're doing to the Palestinians when the Palestinians are engaged in this kind of behavior. Wow, that was really fascinating. Guys, yeah. if if you like this conversation, you should definitely, definitely get this book. Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad by Richard Landis. And unlike a lot of the books we've had recently on the podcast or or uh, people putting out content, this book is in English. 
<laughs> yes. primarily in English, like first and foremost in English. Is it translated to any other languages? No, I'm working on a French translation. Okay. I'd love to get an Israel, a Hebrew translation because I think a lot of Israelis just don't know this story about what happened out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got, like a good historian, you put a lot of uh, annotations, it's footnotes. called? Footnotes. Yeah, footnotes. Yeah, that's uh, right. So yeah. people can yeah. fact-check you. Right, and, the, I, and let me point out, first of all, the book is available on Amazon. Yes. Secondly, um, uh, Nachum Pomerantz at Pomerantz Books in Jerusalem is about mm. to get a shipload. And there's an event the 21st of February at 8 o'clock next Tuesday at the Begin Center where Melanie Phillips, Yossi Kuperwasser, and Adam Levick and I are going to talk about the wow. book. And you can That's get awesome. copies of the book there. Last point is at my website, richard-landis.com, you, will, you can access the footnotes of the book, all of the footnotes by chapter with the links. Nice. The links are not, the only links in the actual book are links that I don't think people could find. But any link that somebody can find just by typing, copying the name of the article, Mm. I took out of the book. But if you want to go straight to the links, they're available and at, on Amazon. You website. have a Kindle version and hard copy. Kindle version. is only ten dollars, and the hard copy is twenty-five. That's awesome. You should get the hard copy, guys. It's, it's worthwhile. Marvelous. Okay, yeah. so but don't get the hardback hard copy because that's Why? A, it's one hundred and twenty bucks. Why not? If someone wants it, <laughs> okay. who are you to tell him? I don't want people it's to be discouraged. How, it's crazy how much more expensive. Well, that's how they make. Then. That's how the publisher makes money: is the libraries buy it. Mm. Uh, it's not the libraries. But I was very it. pleased. Who about is that. it buying it? It's not the libraries. It's no. us. <laughs> no. So I was there's very no, pleased. There's no private libraries. I was out very. There. <laughs> I was very pleased that they came out with a twenty-five dollar version. It's a yeah. uh, so, five hundred page book. Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive. Impressive stuff. Thank you so much for coming. And you were on social media? You tweeted? I tweeted Richard underscore Landis, right? And I tweet. I have a blog called The Augean Stables. Um, and mostly tweet. I, I, I sometimes get involved on uh, Instagram, but not much. Uh, and do you do, do... And I have a Facebook page. You, do you do talks? Like, can people reach out for a sure, talk? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to do a talk. On your website, do you have uh, an email? I guess. Yes, yes. Okay. There's contact information at my website, Richard-Landis, L-A-N-D-E-S. Okay, we'll put links also in the description. All right, great. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was, for a real pleasure. It was fascinating. Real Good pleasure. luck with the new book. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, guys. Thank you so See much. See you on the next Bye, one. Bye, guys.